Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. Easter for, um, for our family is a really important time. Uh, when you saw the two girls on the screen, they're my two daughters. So who got first prize? I did. And um, it was, uh, we've had a really interesting journey. And just to say this, you know, to, to share a little of our journey is not to say that anybody else hasn't had a journey too. I've discovered that uh, people who need to bounce back or recover from anything in life, you know, you just have to keep breathing in order to have an experience like that. Everybody gets their turn uh, or you're the reason why somebody else has to bounce back. And so with Belinda, um, she had a, born with a condition called allergial syndrome. It's a really rare kind of congenital, congenital disease. And um, for all of her life, she lived to the age of 32. And uh, that, was, th- that footage was taken pretty soon after she received a liver transplant. Everybody that is born with allergial syndrome requires a liver transplant and um, mostly before the age of 10. We were told Belinda wouldn't live uh, beyond the age of two, but at the age of 28, she received a liver. Uh, It's an incredible thing to um, receive an organ from another body. It's it's something that messes with your mind incredibly. Um, If, you know, it's, it's hard to really understand it, but the best way I can understand it is that the, that the organ from a dying body was taken from that body and put into another dying body to give it life. And that's what happened to Belinda. She was about four weeks away from dying. It's funny with, um, well, not funny, ha-ha, but it's, 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 it's unusual with, with transplant uh, patients. You know, you've got to be sick enough to get one and you've got to be well enough to get one. And um, so there it was, came through about uh, four weeks before. I think most of the doctors said she would be dead in four weeks if she didn't get a a new liver, and so she got a new liver. And, um, uh, and, And then for the following four years, was it four years after that? She survived for four years. It was about, uh, and it was four years ago from today, uh, from about this time, uh, the week before Easter, she got a terrible infection and she had to go back into RPA. Um, she became the, you might have noticed at the end of that clip, it had the RPA symbol on it. So she became the face of, of, uh, of organ transplants for RPA in that series. She kept making reappearances. Every now and again, I walk into the lounge room and they've got a replay and there's Belinda talking to me again. It's, uh, that's unusual. And uh, a week before Easter, four years ago, she got this terrible infection and she went in. And um, they try to keep the the hospital with as few patients as possible over Easter. And so they sent her home after the week, but she got sicker and sicker during Easter, the Easter break. And then she went back in on Easter Monday, or I think Easter Monday, four years ago. And uh, a week later, she was in heaven. A week later, it was just very, very quick and, and what had happened was that a very common form of cancer for transplant patients but a very rare form of cancer for you and I 
had uh, just swept through a body like a bushfire and uh, not even the medical staff uh, had determined what was wrong. When you look at the other young lady up there, Rachel, that's my other daughter, the younger one that was talking in glowing terms, she'd had a miscarriage two weeks before Belinda died. And so when you think about, uh, you know, the journeys, the things that happen, and uh, you know that like everybody in life needs a good resurrection. Can you say that? Can you agree with me? Everybody needs to bounce back from something, sometime, somehow, somewhere. And, and, uh, and so here we are, and we wanted to share uh, three people's stories with you this morning. But if I, was, if I could be a voice for Belind, because I used to tell her, baby, you, you've got a, a message for your generation. Because in 32 years, she, was, she never received a miraculous healing she never walked out of allergial syndrome. She was never symptom-free. But if you'd asked her where was God uh, through all of those 32 years, if, and I can be her voice this morning. I'm a dad and I don't tell fibs. And, uh, <laughs> and I can tell you this morning that Belinda would say God was with me all the way. She had hundreds of miracles. She had, she had huge things happen to her life. She just never received that as a miracle and um, sometimes that's all the, the only miracles we talk about are the ones where people get these divine, miraculous interventions. It's just as praiseworthy for a person to walk through rather than around their circumstances and say, I did it and I didn't wilt and I'm still strong and I'm not blaming God and I'm not a victim. Maybe victorious, maybe one of the definitions of victorious is not blaming God when you don't understand pause for effect and if I could be a voice for Belinda I would say this to you number one life is not about how excited we can get but how victorious we can become come on you're in a Pentecostal church this morning and Pentecostals are regarded as the excitement machine on the Christian landscape. <laughs> we are the ones that keep dancing and singing. You might have noticed even I, at 67 years of age, my feet literally left the ground this morning during some of those songs that the music, the worship team was leading us in. Not for long, but every now and again, I just a little skip and a jump and I was up and, uh, and, and worshipping God. Most of my praise these days, I kind of dance without the balls of my feet leaving the ground, you know, just called old folks dancing. But God's not concerned about how excited we can get. He's more concerned about how victorious we can become. The excitement that comes from a victorious is much better than the excitement that comes from excitement. That was a good one. Here's what else she would say. Victory, victory always comes after a battle. Victory is trusting God when you don't understand. I already said that. God's plan for us is unique and can't be compared with anyone else's. We have to play the cards we're dealt. Belinda watched through her 32 years and saw other people get the most magnificent miracles. And every now and again, she would ask, Dad, why doesn't that happen to me? And I would say to her, baby, your plan that God gave you before you were born is different to everybody else's and cannot be compared to anyone else's. 
God is more concerned about our destiny than he is with our happiness. And I like this last one. This is on behalf of you, sweetheart, if you're listening. If you hang in there, God will have the last say and you will have the last laugh. (laughs) And this Easter we celebrate Belinda being four years pain-free, disease-free, worry-free in eternity. Yeah. (laughs) Here's another story from a beautiful lady. Welcome, my wife, Tula. It is such an honour to be here. Sorry, I get really emotional Easter time. (laughs) And Good Friday. (laughs) And watching the ads. (laughs) And all the girls, you understand. But it is such an honour to be here at Easter to celebrate the resurrection of our Jesus. Where would we be without him? You know, I was saved when I was 13. I went to a church similar to this and I responded to the altar call and that was a real thing that happened to me. My life changed and I really wanted my life to count from then on. I wanted it to have purpose and meaning. And so a part of that, of course, was to marry somebody who had the same dream and I did. And eventually we pioneered and pastored a church on the, on the south coast for 10 years. Then we moved to Sydney. And then in 2002, in January, my then husband rang me over the phone and told me our marriage was over. A little bit later, we went bankrupt because of a business we owned. And so there I was, age 41. I was bankrupt, I was a single mum, and I was a bit lost. And to tell you the truth, I thought, how can I trust God again? Because I tried to make the right decisions and I prayed and here I was. And I was in a spiritual desert. I felt stuck. I got into a wrong relationship. And then in the spring of 2004, I got together with some friends, Ian and Jane McCormack. And some of you may know Ian McCormack as the guy that got stung by the box jellyfish in a diving trip to Mauritius and he got brought back to life. So he was like the resurrection guy. And he and Jane prayed for me. And I believe that that was kind of a line that God drew in my heart. It's like Jesus came into my little spiritual desert and said, let's get out of here. And so a journey began. And in that time, I also came across this amazing man of God who was looking for a wife. (laughs) And God was so good to us. And Easter... 12 years ago, my son and I went to Hillsong Church, and I'd never given up on God, but I was disappointed with him. I felt like I wasn't really free, and God did something to me that Easter Sunday morning while we were worshipping him. You know, it's still fresh. You know, Jesus really touched me. And it was like I was born again again. And I remember that very first time I gave my life to Jesus, how even though I was a good girl and I hadn't done anything terrible, I felt that this load had come off my shoulders and I felt free. And this happened to me again. I felt like all this stuff that I'd been, you know, that I piled on top of my life and all my disappointment and, and all my frustrations and my wrong decisions, Jesus just came along and he just lifted it off me. And you know, it's such a wonderful thing 
when you come to life spiritually. You know, your eyes are open to see things you haven't seen before and in a new way. You are free. You come alive. And, you know, in amongst all of that, you know, it's so true that God, no matter what happens to you, no matter where life takes you, that there is a future and there is a hope. Just like Jesus, I mean, God promised through the prophet Jeremiah. And God saw two people that were still wanting to serve him and he brought us together and gave us the opportunity to serve him together and have a whole new life and a new beginning. Well, how about that? In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says this. It says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. How many people know, they've heard that verse before. How many people think that's a good verse? It's a, it, how many people have been encouraged by that verse at any time in their life? What a great verse it is. I've got a question for you. Who was that verse written by? Who did he write it to and where were they when they got the letter? So it was written by Jeremiah and they were in what had happened to get them in exile. They, I'll, I'll help you out just a fraction. Israel had been a rotten nation. They had walked away from God. They were worshipping other gods they were doing all kinds of dreadful things. And Jeremiah the prophet, much to the dismay of all the leadership of the nation, came and said, if you don't get your act together, God's going to overwhelm you. You'll be conquered by another nation and you'll be sent to detention for 70 years. You'll be exiled. The word exiled actually means denuded or stripped bare. And, and so what happened was that Israel just refused to repent. They listened to every, every other person that claimed to be a prophet. They refused to receive Jeremiah's words. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of the Babylonian Empire, which is today's modern Iraq, came over with his armies and defeated Israel. And these people were carted off. I mean, has anybody in this room seen pictures of refugees on the telly lately? Not a pretty sight. They can be living in tent cities. If it rains, you just get to walk around the mud. They're fortunate if they have a gas burner or a little fire outside their tent. And friends, they could, have been, they could be doctors and lawyers and builders. Uh, they could be anybody, but now they're refugees. Now they've got a new, a new uh, identity to deal with. And that's what happened way back in Jeremiah's time. They were carted away right across out of their homeland and into a foreign country. And right in the middle, well, right at the beginning of their 70 years, Jeremiah, who had previously prophesied their exile, now sends them another prophecy. And he says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And right at their lowest moment, right at their lowest point, a prophecy comes, a word from God comes over their life and says, you may be at your lowest moment, 
but I'm God and I know just how to lift you up and I know how to give you a future and I know how to give you a hope. And I believe for every person in this place today, there's a promise for you. Whether you even know him or not, it's not important. There's a promise over your, your life today. There's a promise over your marriage. There's a promise over your health. There's a promise over your business. And it goes like this. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Let me introduce another person to you. His name is Shane Cook. Can I just say I think um, Shane married very well. <laughs> to have a rock like Rachel, to have an unflappable person who probably goes through it underneath but shows composure on the surface, the whole time a beautiful mother and a wonderful wife. I just wanted to... Um, say that because it's mostly about Shane because I had the privilege of meeting Shane when I was the pastor of a church in Port Macquarie and he was a butcher and I got to know a little bit about Shane Cook uh, you know he was born in Melbourne to a Catholic family uh, and his parents names were George and Louise he had one brother and he had three sisters uh, you probably have never heard this, but in Bert Newton's, anybody know old moon faces? Yeah. You know, Bert Newton? Yeah. Well, Shane's father appears in his book. And Bert Newton says that George Cook was the boy who always used to pick a fight with Bert Newton after school on the way home. <laughs> I bet Shane never told you that. <laughs> they moved from Melbourne to Yarrawonga. Uh, where Shane became an apprentice jockey. How many people knew that? Then he, I guess he grew. <laughs> I guess he had a growth spurt. One day he was out in the Murray River in a boat with, I think, either his trainer or stable foreman. And uh, the stable foreman or trainer, whoever he was, asked him, could he swim? And Shane said, no, Mr. whatever his name was. So he grabbed him, he grabbed Shane and th just threw him in the river. And Shane came up and down and up and down and the guy said, dog paddle. Shane, when he was up, said, what's that? He couldn't swim, he didn't know how to swim. And so somehow that was Shane's first swimming lesson. Just thought I'd let you know. Shane then became a boxer. I don't know whether you knew that. He's an ex-boxer. Then he became a butcher at his father's butcher shop. And would you believe they had an American Staffordshire Terrier, a very intimidating dog called Butch. <laughs> he was perfectly right with them, but whenever I turned up at their home, I could see the way Butch looked at me. <laughs> Have you ever had a dog look at you as if to say, I'm just about to eat you? <laughs> no words need to be spoken, but you know what he's thinking. Shane got into trouble after he was born again. He had, he'd formed a, a relationship that wasn't so great. But one day he came back to visit me in my office at Port Macquarie and in tears he gave his life to Christ again. And he said, David, I, I can't just stay here in Port Macquarie. I've got to do something with my life. And so he went to Bible college and, uh, and 
got his degree or diploma or whatever it was. And then one day when I'd, we'd, my family and I would moved from Port Macquarie to Newcastle, uh, I was at the, the front door of a church before church meeting started one Sunday morning. Who should walk up the alleyway but Shane? And I said, hello, mate, what are you doing here? He said, I live here now and this is my church. I said, it is? And so he picked up the, the uh, we had brochures at the door in those days. Sorry, this goes back a while. And he began to hand them out to people and everybody would get a brochure and think, who's he? Uh, they didn't know he was their future senior pastor. And so Shane, whenever he thought he rose to become my assistant pastor, you've got no, you've got no idea how much trouble I had with this boy. He'd always get a new idea, and it was always a big idea. It was always a city-sized idea. He'd walk in the door and he said, he used to say, mate, what about we do such and such? This one was the wild thing. He was going to get a fun run to go around Newcastle. He, he actually instructed his stewards around the course so badly that the runners ran an extra five kilometres. He organised the police to come down with their, with their radars so that people could be measured how fast they could bowl a cricket ball. He had all the Newcastle Knights there on the back of a big truck and um, he would wander in time and time again and say, hey, mate, what about we do this? What about we do that? And I got so fed up with him one day, I said, Shane, where is your diary? It, sh diaries and Shane just didn't seem to get on. It didn't matter. But, but, so he'd sort of trudge out and he'd trudge back in with his diary. And so I tried to teach him time management, something that I'm not sure he learned for a long time. And so, so uh, you know, and then he became the senior pastor. I thought the only thing I can do with this young man to, uh, you know, that, that looks half sensible is to give him a job as a senior pastor. So I sacked myself and gave him the job. Well, I was the state chairman, he was the senior pastor, and if he'd been hard to lead before, he was doubly hard to lead now. I got the idea every time I gathered, I wanted to, to, to plant 10 churches in Newcastle, and we got to four, and Shane was one of them, and every time I'd get the pastors together, Shane's body language was much like Butch, the, the American Staffordshire Terrier. It was kind of like... Will you hurry up? I've got important things to do. You know, Shane was always wanting to get out and get on with what it was that he was thinking about. He was a nonconformist leader, which are the very best kind of leaders for churches. He was a nonconformist leader with a very short attention span. I just want to know, has anything changed? This message will self-destruct 10 seconds after I'm finished <laughs> preaching. One day I went to Shane and Rachel who just bought the house and were settling in for a long time in Newcastle and said, Shane, we need a pastor in Shell Harbour. Rachel, it was, Rachel became Butch. They, they, they say... They, they say about phlegmatics or doves or the S personality types 
beware the cornered phlegmatic. And uh, Rachel could have easily cut my throat at breakfast, shot me at lunch, and then got serious at dinner time. <laughs> she, she, she could have, uh, dreadful. Anyway, you know, but the, the beautiful thing is because, you know, they're wonderful people. They prayed about it and they came here. And then, of course, it wasn't that long ago, it was just last year, that Shane had, uh, had to take seven months off of, uh, of, because of burnout. And today, I mean, I wondered, because I met Shane during that time, I wondered if Shane's ministry life was over. I wonder if it was finished. I wonder if he'd ever recover because it looked, it looked bad. And has anybody noticed that he's back? I think Shane would tell you something like this in reflection of what he's experienced. You know, I used to write songs and after I'd written a couple of songs, I thought maybe I should learn how to do this. So I read a book and I don't remember the book, but I remember one sentence in the foreword. It said this, a great song is never written, it's always rewritten. And I know that about plans. A great plan for anything is never written. It's always rewritten. But I know that applies to lives too. It seems like God just remakes us and remakes us. It's like he rewrites us and rewrites us and gets us ready for the next season. And so just like a song has to be rewritten to be made greater, so does a life. I think Shane would tell you that. He'd probably tell you we can always get up again because we've got a get-up kind of guy living inside us. He'd probably tell you any sized resurrection is possible for a praying heart. He'd probably tell you where only one up would look away from a resurrection. And here's the deal, that there are many people, in fact, I'm going to correct what I'm saying, but there are many people living an unfinished life. Tula was living, when, when, when she was divorced, she had to work out at some point whether something was ending or whether something was beginning. Yes? The exiles in, in Babylonia had to work out whether something was ending or whether something was beginning. Shane had to work out last year whether something was ending or whether something was beginning. Fifteen months before Belinda died, she married my current son-in-law, who's about to be married, so he's about to become somebody else's son-in-law too. <laughs> he collecting son -in uh, fathers-in-law. <laughs> Belinda married Rowan. And when Belinda was, because you couldn't keep a good girl down, she decided to have her say at her wedding. And this is, just get it in perspective, this is 15 months before she passed away. And she was full of hope. When we picked up, when you saw the, the uh, video clip up there, um, she was married by then. And she was doing this for RPA. And 
she said at her speech on that particular day at the, at the reception, she said, Dad used to come in at night before I had my liver transplant. Dad, that's me, would come in at night and he would give me cholestyramine. Now, if you don't know what cholestyramine is, it's about this consistency of clag. It's like, it's something you have because your liver isn't digesting your food and so you shovel it in and it helps the digestive process. And so I would go in at 10 o'clock at night and we'd always think she was asleep, but a little mouth would open, she'd smell the cholestyramine, it was sort of like a fruity smell, and a little mouth would open like a bird in a nest waiting for the mother bird to give it a worm. And so you'd shovel this stuff in and instead of just leaving, I would sit on the edge of her bed and I would say, I, I, I would begin to speak. I'd say, Belinda, you're going to be a great lady. You're going to have a message for your generation. You're going to experience the power of God coming on you time after time after time. God's going to raise you up to be a force to be a reckoned with. You're going to be a weapon in his hand. I, look, honestly, I would sit down night after night with this college styramine and I mean, sometimes it was my then wife who would put it in, but a lot of the time it was me. And, you know, she was probably the receiver of the best prophecies I ever prophesied. I'd sit on her bed and I would declare the greatness and the power and the strength and the anointing of God into her life. And when she gave her speech at the wedding, she said, Dad, she addressed me, she said, Dad, you always thought I was asleep. But when you started to speak, I would deliberately wake up. I'd, I'd, my eyes would be closed, but I would wake up just to hear what you said to me. She said, I listened and listened and listened and I drank everything in that you said. Fifteen months after that, she was in intensive care in RPA. And I always had wondered, as a fleeting thought, what must it be like for parents who were asked if they are ready to turn off the life support. And I never knew, of course, until that moment, because Rowan, her husband, and me, her father, we were there, and the hospital staff came to us and said, we think it's time to turn off the life support. And then they asked the impossible question. They said, are you ready? And of course, you're never ready for that. But you have to be ready for that. And so I said, look, just before you do, I wonder if you'd give me a moment with my girl. And Rowan allowed that to happen and he let me go into the room with Belinda and for the last time, I sat on the edge of her bed and I began to prophesy over her life. I said, sweetheart, you're just about to slip out of your body and you're just about to enter into heaven. You're just about to meet Jesus face to face. You're just about to meet your mum again and be a great reunion. I apologise to her for not being all the father I could have been to her. I suppose every man would have to do that. Just like a dad, I, I said to her, and sweetheart, this isn't going to hurt.
How privileged is this man that God would allow him the privilege of sitting on a daughter's bed, his child's bed, and ushering her out of this mortal life into that immortal life, out of this time and into her eternity. Probably I'll never get over being so incredibly privileged And at some point, I suppose, Belinda had to work out whether something was ending or whether something was beginning. Everybody, every grandmother, every grandfather, every mother, every father, every teenager, every adolescent, every child, every boy, every girl, every baby is living an unfinished life. the vast majority, the vast majority of all of our lives will be lived after we die in eternity. I joke with my family now. I say, you better behave because I've just got a habit of shipping all the people I love off to heaven. So you behave. At the end of the day, this is all that matters. At the end of the day, this is why Jesus died. He'd worked out that when he said it is finished, that something was beginning. Everything he aimed at in all of his life was to get to that cross so that something could be finished in order that something could begin. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy was every man and woman on planet Earth. And so this is what I do these days. I carry this message of hope. Come on, some of you, you, you've signed out. You've signed off. Some some of you, you, you've... Somebody's betrayed you. Some marriage was broken. Some disease came. Some tragedy or crisis struck. And you looked to God and said, well, if that's how you're going to treat me, and maybe you use the other finger. Some of you haven't worked out yet that there's never a good reason to finish before your time. If you ask me why did all that happen to me and why it's happening to you, I can't tell you why it happened to me. I can't tell you why Belinda was born with allergial syndrome. I can't tell you why her mother died when she was 52. I can't tell you why Belinda had her ears pinned back and, and, um, you know, just to look normal in her face. I can't tell you why she had her bones surgically cut and reset so she could turn her arm over just so she could get change at the checkout like a normal person. I can't tell you why she never was healed. I can't tell you why she was only married for 15 months. I can't tell you a whole lot of things, but I can tell you this. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And if you hang in there, If you hang in there, you'll find out that God will always have the last say and and you will always have the last laugh, no matter what it is you've gone through. 
because I know the promises or the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And if you've tucked your toes in under the blankets and said, well, I'm just not going out there anymore. Life's too hard. I'm going to encourage you to get out of bed again. I'm going to encourage you to put on your best stuff and get out there and start living again because there's a plan for you. You, you know, the, one of the, God rarely has to explain. He rarely does explain why he turns up and why he does what he does and why he allows to happen what he allows to happen. But at the end of the day, there's a resurrection for you. There's a resurrection for everybody. I wonder if you'd bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Father, I pray for this people, that every single man and woman in this place, in the hearing of my voice, would find your face in, the moment, in this moment of prayer and, 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 and open their hearts and say again, Lord Jesus, here I am, use me. Lord God, that there would be a revival of hope in people's hearts, that there would be a, an anointing that would come on people like, that, like the presence of God came on Tula four years ago at Hillsong. Lord Jesus, or way back then, Lord Jesus, that, that there would be something deep within where people would say, wait a minute, I'm not going to sit down here. I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to live like this any longer. And Lord Jesus, that you would pour out your heaven over people. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, there could be people in this place that have never, ever given their life to Jesus before. And I'm wondering if everybody would pray this prayer after me. But in particular, if you've never given your life to Christ in this place, pray this prayer, look away to him and pray it with all of your heart. Here we go out loud together, Lord Jesus. I receive you today as my Lord, as my Saviour. I don't understand everything that's happened in my life, but I know you do. And so I look to you. Receive me as I receive you. I declare you are my Lord and you are my Saviour and you are my strength and you will lift me up and cause me to live again. In Jesus' name, <coughs> amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Can we do that? Can the worship team come? <clears throat> Oops. Pillars in my prayer for you today is that you would have a real Easter. You really can't have a real Easter if you don't have a good resurrection. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. Jesus that says in Romans that if you died with him, you'll also live with him. There's always the next step to take. There's always the future waiting for you. I wonder if you'd run to it this morning. And if anybody would like me to pray for them this morning, 
We're going to finish the service now. We're going to worship God with a song. Rach, good. And maybe you've realized today that you're living the unfinished life. Maybe it's time, time to sign up again. Maybe it's time to say, well, wait a minute, I'm just not going to live distant. And maybe it's time. If you'd like to come, I'd love to pray for you. God bless you today. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thanks, Rach.